Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Michael Ian Black. A reasonable person who had any impulse control at all would go, you know what I'm not going to do? That and more. But first, folks, if you don't know, keeping risk running is one heck of a challenge. We have a lot of people working on the show, and we're an indie operation, so we really do rely quite a lot on the support of the people who love the show. And we love the people who love the show. We are so grateful for our patrons over at patreon.com slash risk, where We have tons of bonus content, lots of stories, over 150, lots of check-ins, over 60 of those. We give opportunities to our patrons over at Patreon, you know, uh, free tickets to this or that, or an opportunity to sit in on a recording session. We ask for people's feedback about particular edits of stories. So it's a great, fun way to be more involved in the Risk community. This week, I want to give a shout out to Hannah Campa, who is our latest patron giving $25 or more per month. Thank you so much, Hannah. And you too could become a patron or maybe raise the amount if you already are a patron over at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Joshua Redman Quartet behind me now. 
And we're calling this week's episode the best of risk number 24. About twice a year, we choose our favorite stories that we've run recently and put them in these best of compilations. This time around, we had so many that we decided to split them into number 23 and number 24. If you know anyone who hasn't heard the show before, but you think they'd like it, definitely recommend these best of risk episodes. You can go on our website, risk-show.com slash best of risk, and there they all are. Another way to introduce people to the show is to bring them to live shows. In May, we are doing our very first tour date. That is May 6th, and it's in Portland, Oregon. Then on May 7th, we're in Seattle, Washington. On May 17th, we're at Hotel Cafe in LA. And on May 19th, at Caveat in New York City. You can find out more and get tickets for any of those shows at risk-show.com slash tour. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Maureen Ferguson, an amazing story that she shared at a Risk Live show in New York City a few months ago. But before that, we're going to hear a story that Michael Ian Black shared on the show a long time ago, but that had only been available on Patreon for our patrons over there. For the longest time before we decided, hey, let's pull that out and share it on the free feed as well. Michael shared this story when Risk was at Brown University all the way back in 2011. So without further ado, here he is now. This is Michael Ian Black with a story we call Wild Wings in Ecstasy. My story uh, is really about shame and so many levels of shame, an almost unbelievable amount to me that I would willingly subject myself to such shame, but I, I did very recently, <laughs> within about a month ago. It starts in a shameful enough place which is that I notice in my drive through town that uh, Buffalo Wild Wings has opened up, which, if you don't know, it's a chain of uh, fast food. They sell buffalo wings. And I think to myself, I'd like to go to that place. <laughs> Shame. About a week later, I'm home, and I think to myself, now would be the perfect time to go to Buffalo Wild Wings. And so I do, and I go to Buffalo Wild Wings, and it's, it's like a sports bar, basically. There's just screens everywhere. I, I, you know, I, but I, I don't belong there, really. But I like Buffalo Wings so very much that I decide that this is the right place for me, and I'm seated. And then the next level of shame happens, which is that I'm eating at Buffalo Wild Wings, I'm eating buffalo wings. And the busboy comes by, and he goes, hey, you're Michael Ian Black. And I go, yes, I am. And I'm deeply ashamed <laughs> that I have been recognized eating by myself at Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> the next level of shame 
occurs about a week after that, when I think to myself, you know what I could go for right now? <laughs> Some Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> but I'm thinking to myself, I can't go because there's a chance that busboy will be working there and he will see me eating there for the second time in a week and go, that fucking loser from TV is eating at Buffalo Wild Wings again. And I have to balance to myself my, the potential shame of being recognized again at Buffalo Wild Wings versus my desire for Buffalo Wings. And I decide to myself, he's probably not working. I'm going to go to Buffalo Wild Wings. And I go, and I walk in, and the first thing that happens is the busboy goes, Hey, man! <laughs> and I, I feel so deeply ashamed at that moment, not only because I'm meeting at Buffalo Wild Wings, but because I'm carrying with me my brand new uh, Barnes & Noble Nook e-reader. <laughs> Which is such a shameful device to have. <laughs> And worse, I'm reading The Hunger Games on it, which is just a book for teenage girls. I'm sitting there, and not 90 seconds after I'm seated, the busboy comes up, and he goes, hey, man. And what I hear him say is, do you eat bugs? And I'm, I'm like, That's, I don't want, you know, I don't want to hear that question when I'm sitting at Buffalo Wild Wings. Do you eat bugs? Because that really sounds like a warning to me that maybe I shouldn't be in Buffalo Wild Wings. And I say what anybody would say. I say, what? And he goes, do you need drugs? I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's like, because I follow your Twitter feed. And I have a pretty active Twitter feed. And occasionally on my Twitter feed, I make jokes about, hey, wouldn't it be great, because I'm traveling around all the time, if after the show, somebody gave me some ecstasy or something like that. Jokes. Officer, jokes. <laughs> it's never happened. Nobody's ever given me, and I don't really do drugs. Not for lack of appetite, but just for lack of opportunity. I'm a middle-aged man who lives in the suburbs. Like, where am I gonna, you know, I'm not gonna hang out at the high school and be like, you know, you want to fucking do this. <laughs> so, he's like, I, f I read your Twitter feed. And I'm like, oh, okay. And he's like, so, you know, do you need drugs? And I go, yeah. <laughs> Why not, you know? Shame. <laughs> and he's speaking it like full volume. He's like, so what do you need? Do you need like ecstasy or do you need like what? You know, I'm like, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. I'm like, that'd be great. And he goes, all right. And he writes down his number and his name on a cocktail napkin from Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> slides it across the table to me. And I take it. And then he goes about his business, and I read The Hunger Games and enjoy my buffalo wings. Thinking to myself, I am never going to call this guy. How could I? That would be absurd. 
Less than a day later, I call him. <laughs> I don't call him, though, because I don't want to talk to him on the telephone. There's just no way, but I text him. I have the texts. <laughs> the shame in these texts is unbelievable from both ends. It starts with me going, hey, it's Michael Ian Black. <laughs> Are you around later? He responds, just got out of work. I'm at the mall getting some drinks. <laughs> Who the fuck goes from Buffalo Wild Wings to the mall to get drinks? I'm just gonna pop into Banana Republic and then get some drinks while I'm at the mall. He goes, I'll be around town all year. <laughs> LOL. He writes LOL. What happens at the end of the year with this guy? Does he have a contract? I'm like, well, my year's up. And then he writes, what's up? What the fuck do you think is up? And now my antennae are sort of quivering a little bit. Because I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, if he's writing what's up, he wants me to commit in text that I want to buy drugs from him because he's working for the fucking cops. Because you know how it is. With the cops, they got these new programs where they, with the narcs, they, ha they have them as busboys at Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> Those hotbeds of drug activity. Where they just wait for unsuspecting basic cable stars to come in. <laughs> close the trap. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to write. Well, I'm, you know, I'm paranoid, but not so paranoid that I'm not going to continue the conversation. So I write, just wondering if there's a good time slash day to come by. It's like we are arranging for blowjobs. <laughs> because we're being cryptic with each other. It's very blowjobby, you know what I mean? So he gives me, and then he writes back, he gives me his hours when he's working, and he says, I hope you're not working with the cops. That would be such a sad news headline. And I'm thinking, does he think I'm working with him? Like, I'm best known for like being on VH1. Like, it's so unlikely. That VH1 is inserting narcs with the cops, and they're like... So, then he writes something which really depresses me. He writes, you're good for the money? And I know I can't keep a television show on the air. I know that. I am forever getting canceled off the television. But buddy, I'm good for the money. <laughs> I eat at Buffalo Wild Wings. 
I'm pretty sure I'm good for the money. He writes, hey, I found some E and mushrooms. LOL. Would either of those interest you? I write, sure, I'll take both. Because <laughs> I'm like, what am I going to get this opportunity again? So we arrange to meet at the Buffalo Wild Wings. Because that's our place. And I'm like, I'll just come to the parking lot and we can like, conduct our business transaction there. And he's like, park around back. I go, all right. So at the appointed time and day, it's a Monday. Drive to Buffalo Wild Wings, and I drive around back, and then we sort of text each other, and he writes, I'm in Buffalo Wild Wings right now, and now I'm worried there's like a sting operation. I'm going to walk into Buffalo Wild Wings in the middle of the afternoon, and I'm going to get gang-tackled by cops, and Chris Hansen is going to be there. <laughs> and it's going to be horrible. So I'm like, why don't you come outside? So he comes outside, and I sort of watching him in the rearview mirror, and he's like this, and he's sort of looking around, and I get out, and I'm like, like that. And, and, you know, it's just so sad and shameful, the way we're conducting ourselves. So he's like, where do you want to do this? And again, it's like, it, I'm like, let's do it in our car. And it's so blowjobby, the way we're talking to each other. We get into the car, and I'm like, and I, and I've never bought drugs before from somebody. You know, I don't know how to do this, and I don't know what the etiquette is. And I'm like, so what's up? You know, now I'm being that cryptic, you know, I'm like, how are you? You know? <laughs> he's like, yeah, I broke my wrist. And he's got a big cast on his wrist. I'm like, well, how did that happen? <laughs> Snowboarding. Sad. It's like, yeah, now I can't even work at Buffalo Wild Wings anymore. And I'm like, yeah, you can't. And he's like, so? I'm like, so? And he's like, I got the stuff. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, it's 80 bucks. And I go, okay. And I take out my wallet and I show him I have like all these 20s in there because I just gone to the bank. I'm like, well, let me just get four of these for you because I'm good for the money. <laughs> and we conduct our business. And he gives me the things. And then he goes uh, back into Buffalo Wild Wings uh, with his friend. And as I'm driving home, I get a, a follow-up text from him that says, did I tell you about my prison internship? <laughs> he was an intern at a prison, and he goes, LOL, and I was worried you were setting me up. It was nice to meet you. Let me know how they were. All right. So as I said, this is a Monday. The only thing that's significant about this day is that I had committed a few weeks earlier to performing at a benefit show for a comedian who died. His name is Greg Giraldo. Some of you may know him. He died, yeah. Oh, sure. Terrific comedian, very nice guy. Uh, dead from drugs. OD had a severe drug problem. And I have committed to performing that evening at a benefit for him, having just bought drugs. Shame. 
a reasonable person who had any impulse control at all would go, you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to take drugs right before I go on stage at the Greg Giraldo show. Both for professional reasons and for just good etiquette. (laughs) That's what a reasonable person would have done. But a reasonable person doesn't have impulse control like I have, where I've got these drugs in my pocket having not taken these drugs in years and years and years. And I'm like, well, I can't not take the drugs because I have them. The fact that I have them is in, like I cannot wait anytime. I have to do them now, despite the fact that it's the most obscene thing I can do. <laughs> so I'm trying to like time it in such a way that it won't totally fuck me up as I'm performing at the Greg Giraldo benefit. So I take one hours before, thinking to myself, it'll be gone by the time I perform. I've got four. I do do not take all four. I'm telling you right now, I do not take all four. I take it, and I'm by myself in my house because I can't not do it. And it's pretty good. Not great, pretty good. And I'm like writing friendly emails to people I haven't talked to in a long time. (laughs) I'm listening to Aphex Twin, and I'm having a fine time. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I'm fine. This feels great. I don't want this to stop. Despite the fact that I have a Greg Giraldo benefit in a few hours, I think Greg would appreciate the irony of this. Having met Greg twice in my life, I'm like, Greg would appreciate this very much. I'm like, I have three more. What I will do is, I will take one of them and put it in my pocket, and I will take the other two and leave them in my house, because I know myself well enough to know that if I take the other two, I will do all four. I take the one, I go to the thing, I take it, because I don't want these good feelings to end, I'm on stage performing for the Greg Giraldo audience, who I think is largely friends and family. It's a very poorly attended event, all of whom know that he died from drugs. And it's, I feel amazing. (laughs) And it goes pretty well. And I wish there was an ending where I collapsed because that would have served me right. But what, uh, what the lesson that I took away from this is that drugs are, are, are very fun. <laughs> Thank you guys very much.
Hey man, do you eat bugs? Every day, only at Buffalo Wild Wings. Official, official It was the week before Thanksgiving in 2011, and I was headed into work uh, at a boutique I owned at the time. So just frazzled, super stressed out, because it's the holiday season, right? And I'm working retail. So I open up the shop, and I listen to my voicemail, and there's this crazy fucking message from a cousin that I didn't really know talking about my father. But I couldn't really make out what she was saying, The only words I could understand were surgery, consent, and next of kin. So I was like, this probably isn't good news, (laughs) okay? And I should mention, I did not have a good relationship with my dad. A nicer person might say he had his demons. I would say, yeah, but he was a dick. Okay, and thankfully, my mom left him when I was pretty young, so I didn't have as much exposure to him as I could have. So growing up, we had a real, like, on-again, off-again relationship, you know, one of those will-they-won't-they pay-child-support things. Spoiler alert, they won't. (laughs) But now it's 2011, and I hadn't seen my dad in years. Now, I would talk to him on the phone sometimes, but that was normally just him calling me, saying the same drunken shit he always did, like, that Gwenny is really something special. Gwenny was his pet name for Gwen Stefani, who he was oddly obsessed with. (laughs) Or how he wished he was back in prison so he could just sit around and play chess all day. My favorite, of course, He didn't stab his girlfriend. She fell on the knife. Now, why did I still talk to this dude at all, right? I don't know, man. Maybe I pitied him. Or maybe I just wanted a dad. Now, when you have a shitty parent, you spend a lot of time grieving them while they're still alive. But you hang on to this hope this possibility that someday it might be different and maybe they'll change. So I replayed that voicemail trying to make sense of it when my father's sister calls me. Now Aunt Marcy tells me there'd been an accident. My dad fell out of an attic. He was drunk and on some kind of pills and he sustained a severe head injury. She also told me that I was technically his next of kin, and would I speak with the neurosurgeon and give consent to operate? Well, it's the week before Thanksgiving and I'm still in my store, which is now filling up with people. So I grab the phone and navigate through all the customers and slip out the back door, where I call a doctor who tells me it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. And if they don't do the surgery now, my dad is definitely going to die. But the prognosis wasn't great either. 
best case scenario at this point is he would survive but be in a vegetative state forever if he even made it through the procedure. Now, I didn't know what my dad's wishes were, all right? I didn't know much about this guy at all except for he was a violent alcoholic who happened to really like Gwen Stefani. So I asked the doctor what he would do in my position and the doctor said he would do the surgery because the brain is unpredictable and sometimes the outcome can surprise you. So I said, okay, let's do it. Let's do the surgery. Now my dad survived that surgery and he was doing better than anyone expected. And when I talked to the doctor, he explained it was because my father's brain was so pickled in his skull already from long-term alcohol abuse, that injury did not do the same damage <laughs> as it would have to a healthy brain. Now, I always thought alcoholism would be the death of this man. Now, alcoholism saved his life, okay? But look, I hadn't gone to see him at the hospital. I didn't know if I wanted to, you know, but people started pressuring me, kind of hinting at this guilt I might feel if he were to die. And that's the thing about growing up in an Irish Catholic family, right, is guilt, guilt and family. But was this man even really my family? You know, I was also in the hospital with a brain injury as a baby, but my dad wasn't there. He was out literally dancing the night away as though somehow he did know that he was in fact living the last days of disco while my mom sat in the hospital alone. So Thanksgiving came and I'm sitting at my mother's house. I'm sitting at my mother's house and I'm surrounded by the love of my family, my real family. But so that guilt <laughs> started wriggling its way in because I'm picturing my father alone in a hospital room on Thanksgiving and I don't know, it felt somehow even too shitty for him. So I look at my husband, Dan, and I'm like, Dan, we gotta go to the hospital. So we go to the hospital, and I'm walking into this humming room, and I see this man, gaunt and frail, man, just machines shoved into him. And I look at this man, my father, and suddenly I feel, I feel gratitude, okay? I feel this deep, immense gratitude that can't even be contained in my body as tears just pour out of my eyes because I love my life. And if everything hadn't happened exactly as it had, including having this man, this flawed and broken man as my father, I wouldn't have this life. So I grab his hand first time I've even touched my father in over a decade and I hold it and I look at him and blurt out 
I forgive you. I, I forgive you, Dad. I, I love you. And then something amazing happens. He opens his eyes. He opens his eyes and starts moving his lips, trying to speak. Now remember, this man was not expected to survive, let alone regain consciousness. And now here he is, trying to communicate with me on Thanksgiving night. But I can't quite make out what he's saying, you know? So I look to my husband, Dan, and I'm like, what, what is it? What, what's he saying? But Dan looks a little uncomfortable, okay? And like, kind of like he knows something that I don't. So I'm like, what is it, Dan? What, what? And he finally answers me, um, uh, I, th- I think he's trying to say, uh, fuck you. Sure enough. I look over at my father, who's now feebly attempting to flip us off. And he is very clearly mouthing, fuck you. So look, sometimes the outcome can surprise you. But sometimes on Thanksgiving, in a hospital room, having just met your husband for the first time, while being in the midst of a medical miracle, sometimes your dad, still just a dick. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. This is Risk. This is No Doubt behind me now. And we just heard from Maureen Ferguson, who you can find on Instagram at Maureen Fergusar. And before Maureen, we heard a little interstitial by our editor, John LaSala. Folks, don't forget that our school is at thestorystudio.org. That's where the folks who produce Risk, the folks who do all the coaching, you know, with the storytellers behind the scenes, 
also teach classes in storytelling for business, storytelling for performance, storytelling for personal growth, and we do our custom tailored workshops for businesses. You know, we've done workshops for Google, Pfizer, American Express, Citibank, on and on. People are always raving about how much they love our storytelling workshops that you can find at thestorystudio.org. Our final story on this week's episode is a long one. We didn't used to put long stories on the best of compilations. So this is a bit of an experiment. Let us know what you think. This story really knocked us out this year. Lee True really didn't go through very much coaching, very much workshopping from us. He sent this recording in as his audition draft and... We just decided to run it more or less like he told it. Although there is an addendum, there is a sort of chapter two to the story that we included on Patreon. But here is the main event. This is a story called The Light That Burns Twice As Bright by Lee True. So my daughter, Blaze, was three years old. And I was looking after her for the weekend because her mom needed to work in Sydney, which is the nearest big city to us, where we lived on the south coast of New South Wales in Australia. We had booked Blaze in for swimming lessons. We'd been going to the local swimming pool, and every time we went, there were big kids having swimming lessons in a part of the pool that was roped off and Blaze would look at them and she would say, can I do swimming lessons? And we'd say, oh, when you're a bit older, maybe when you're bigger. But now she was old enough to do the swimming lessons and we'd booked her in and the season was about to start and problem was that she had a bit of a cold. She had a temperature and kind of a runny nose and she hadn't been eating much for a few days and her, her heart rate was kind of elevated. You could feel her heart beating. So when she said, oh, is it swimming lessons soon, Dad? I said, actually, it was supposed to be today, but I think that because you got a cold, we might have to leave it for another time. And she said, oh, no, I want to do swimming lessons. I want to do swimming lessons. And I said, okay, we'll see. And I started making breakfast and hoping that she would just forget. But she went upstairs to her bedroom and she came back down again, dressed in her swimming costume. And she sat there on this little box that we had, was just kicking her legs, waiting for me to take her to swimming lessons. And I felt really torn. I was thinking, what is the right thing to do right now? She desperately wants to do this. Is it okay? Is it safe? Is it criminal negligence if I take her swimming now? What should we do? I'm not sure. So I thought, I'll just wait till after we've, we've had breakfast. So we had breakfast and then she seemed to be better. She kind of was perkier and seemed fine really apart from some sniffles and a little bit of sort of pink in her cheek so I said okay we'll we'll go there and we'll see how we go and so 
we got in the car, drove out there and ha- had her nicely rugged up so she was all warm. But when we pulled up at the swimming pool, again, I looked in the, in the rearview mirror and she, again, she looked a little bit sick. Her eyes were a little bit glazed. She was sort of a bit dreamy, a bit spacey. And I thought, oh God, what's the right thing to do in this moment? I'm not sure. I felt torn again. But when she saw the swimming pool, she started getting excited and she said, okay, swimming lessons, swimming lessons. And I said, okay, let's go in. So we, we got into the building and we got changed. And suddenly there's that, that chlorine smell and all the, the rowdiness of kids shouting and she felt a bit overwhelmed suddenly. She said, ah, oh, I think I want to go home. So now I'm torn again because I think, what's the right thing to do here? Should I go home? If, I, if we go home now, am I just telling her that it's okay to quit when things get hard? Or is that just a crazy idea and we should just go home and let this girl rest? She also seemed kind of undecided. She, part of her seemed like she wanted to do the lessons, part of her didn't. We went up to go and talk to the, the swimming teacher who'd seen us kind of indecisive. And she said, oh, she'll be fine. She was this big Irish lady. She said, she'll be fine. Just leave her with me, dad. Dad, just take a little walk away. And I think to myself, oh, she thinks I'm this kind of overprotective helicopter parent. She doesn't understand that Blaze is actually a bit sick. I've tried to explain this to her. But then I'm like, maybe I am an overprotective helicopter parent. Maybe I just do need to walk away. And so I said to Blaze, hey, I'm just going to leave you for the swimming lessons for a little bit and then I'll come back again. And she starts saying, no, daddy, no. Please, daddy, please. And she starts wailing, wailing. And the swimming instructor lady says, okay, dad, you need to walk away now. And I'm like so torn in this moment. Okay, is this trauma in action? Is this what she's going to be talking to therapists about in years to come? Is this abandonment stuff? And every time she goes past the swimming pool, she's going to feel kind of neglected and emotionally <laughs> damaged or should I just leave her and maybe my indecision is making it harder for her completely torn but in the end I just decide to walk away the matronly swimming instructor was quite convincing when she said she'll be fine dad I think you just need to go for a walk and so I turned around and I walked away feeling like my heart was getting pulled out and I went and stood behind this pillar they had these big pillars in the pool and I waited for a minute and then I looked back around the pillar and Within 30 seconds, Blazer stopped crying and she was joining in with all of the other girls. They were doing this thing where they were moving hand over hand around the edge of the swimming pool. And I felt so proud. Wow, my little girl, she's doing the swimming lessons with the big girls. Well done. So happy and proud for her. So relieved. And the time flew by and... When the lesson was done, I, I came to her and I had all snacks and a warm towel. And she said, I did it, Daddy. I did swimming lessons with the big girls. I said, I know. I'm so proud of you, my sweetie. Well done. And I gave her a big hug and we had some snacks together. And then we went and got changed and we stood in the showers. And there was this warm shower. We went into the family changing room. So we kind of had it to ourselves. And I was holding her and the warm shower was on her back and she kind of just softened into me and just relaxed. And we spent a long time there, about maybe 20 minutes in the shower. And a big part of that was just me kind of wanting to give her space to relax and feel safe, but also maybe for me to <laughs> let go of the tension and neurosis I'd had about whether this swimming lesson was a good idea in the first place. But for 20 minutes, I just I held her under that shower and... I sang to her and she was murmuring along singing with me and I told her what I I would tell her every day which is you're my 
clever, brave, strong, beautiful girl. I'm so proud to be your dad. We got changed and started driving back home again. We called up her mum in Sydney to let her know what had happened and we said, oh, Blaze was such a big girl today. She went and did swimming lessons and she wasn't sure if she wanted to do it at first and I wasn't sure if it was a good idea. And then when we got there, she was crying and I, in the end I walked away. I felt so bad, but she did it. It was a great, a great day. She really enjoyed it. And Blaze was listening in the back and I was talking to her mum on speakerphone and after we hung up, she said from the back of the car, Daddy, I know why you had to walk away. I said, do you, my sweetheart? Why is that? She said, so I could concentrate. She was three years old. I didn't even know she knew the word concentrate. And I said, I'm so glad that you understand. That's exactly right, my love. That's exactly right. Thank you. <laughs> Almost feeling like I wanted to cry with relief. And then we got home and... She immediately wanted to go to bed. She wouldn't eat anything, which was really distressing for me. I was like, you need to eat something after swimming lessons. She'd only had a tangerine. So I was trying to get her to eat stuff and getting a bit stressed out about that, the fact that she wouldn't eat. And in the end, put her in front of a DVD of Miffy, Miffy the Little Rabbit. She liked this animated movie about Miffy the Rabbit. And I started trying to get on with work. I had emails and a business call to do. And at one point in the middle of the business call, she was shouting for me she needed something and so I had to pause the call and come in and start the movie again. It had finished and she wanted it to start again. Part of me was feeling guilty that I was just babysitting my daughter with the screen and a part of me was feeling stressed out that I was having to do this single parenting thing and feeling embarrassed that I was having to interrupt my calls and just kind of tension and, and angst and also anxiety. And then that evening Gina got back home again and I explained that Blaze had been in bed and was still pretty sick and Gina said well maybe we should just take her to hospital get her checked out and because we'd taken her recently to a hospital up in Sydney and that they knew her up there she said I'll just drive up to Sydney again it's not that far and so the next day they got in the car and as they turned the car around just before they headed off I, I heard Blaze say mommy are we going on an adventure and her mum said yes that's right we are and they drove off. And then that evening, I got a phone call from Gina at the hospital, Blaze's mum, saying that they had done x-rays of Blaze's chest because her breathing was a bit short and raspy. And they discovered disturbing masses all throughout her abdomen and that they had put her under general anesthetic to do an MRI scan. And then under the general anesthetic, one of her lungs had collapsed because it was so full of tumors, the size of grapes and, and lemons, she said. And that Blaze was still unconscious and was now on life support on a breathing machine. And that I should come to the hospital immediately. And I didn't know it then, but that was the last time as I saw them leaving in the car, it was the last time I ever saw Blaze conscious. Two weeks later, she was dead. Two weeks later, the doctors were explaining to us that it was time to switch off the machine, that we'd done everything that we could, and that the concentration of oxygen that it was requiring to, to keep her blood oxygenated was actually scalding her lungs and damaging them permanently. 
and that the air pressure that was needed to keep pushing air into her lungs was actually opening tears in her lungs, that she hadn't responded to adult strength chemotherapy, and that at least one of the tumors seemed now to have grown so big it was restricting blood flow to the brain and she might have sustained permanent brain damage. It was likely that she had. And so that night, well, we switched off her machine and we held her while she, while she left her body. There's a lot more to that story. That wasn't completely out of the blue because three or four years earlier, when Gina had first discovered that she was pregnant, she was in her 40s when she got pregnant. So as far as she was concerned, parenthood was out of the question. So it was a surprise to discover that she was pregnant, a nice surprise. And then a few days later, she discovered that she had breast cancer. She had a lump and when it got the biopsy and they said, yeah, you have breast cancer. So four days after discovering that she was pregnant, she discovered she also had breast cancer. And the doctor advised her then you have to get an abortion, you have to terminate this pregnancy because the pregnancy hormones are going to be like candy for this cancer, going to be like steroids for this cancer. You won't survive and neither will the child, so terminate immediately. And Gina, who is a strong person who knows herself, sort of trusts her intuition, felt deep inside of herself and said, actually, no, I'm not going to do that. I think that there's a way. So she went ahead with the pregnancy and it seemed to be fine until the middle trimester when the levels of circulating tumor cells in her body skyrocketed and even the the one doctor that we'd found who was supportive of her choice to keep Blaze started to be concerned and Gina decided that it was time to have some chemotherapy even though she was pregnant in the second trimester. And the doctors that we spoke to said that this was fine, that this, this happened from time to time, and the most likely complication would be that the child might be born with a, a slightly lower birth weight because the, the chemotherapy suppresses quickly growing cells. So that maybe she'll be a bit smaller when she comes out, but other than that, it should be fine. And that the uterus filters out the vast majority of the, of the chemotherapy. It protects her on the whole. And lo and behold, when Blaze was born, she was actually a big baby. She was four and a half kilos. She was massive. And I remember us being at home and Gina going into labor and the contractions getting really big, really strong. And us on the phone to the midwife and the midwife saying, just stay at home. Don't come to the birthing center yet. Often mums come in too early and then the adrenaline of the to travel slows down birth. So just wait until the last minute. And then I hung up and I said to Gina, this is what the midwife says, we need to just stay here. And Gina says, get her back on the phone and tell her I'm about to have this baby right now. <laughs> and so I phoned her up again. I said, hey, Gina, would like to talk to you. And Gina screamed down the phone as the next contraction came and the midwife says, okay, come immediately. And so we piled into the car and I, at the time, wasn't driving very much. I actually didn't have a, have a full driver's license. <laughs> I'd been living in big cities or living in the bush and I hadn't done much driving. So I'm driving this enormous Land Rover Defender beast of a truck, and I wasn't sure of the way to the hospital. And Gina had her head down and her bum up in the air, having really intense contractions in the back of the car and screaming, and every now and then popping her head up to, to say, go right, go right, go right, here, don't, stop, 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 don't, 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 don't. <laughs> left, left, left ahead, left ahead. And uh, I'm sweating and trying to drive this car, and we pull up in front of the hospital, 
and they let us just leave the car right in front of the hospital because Gina's screaming so loudly and help her into a wheelchair and then we're racing into the elevator and we get out of the elevator and she screams so loudly that all of the doctors in the birthing unit come running and as we wheel her towards the ward she's screaming again at the next contraction and we see it flashes briefly by this room full of prospective parents I see all these wide-eyed parents sitting in a circle in chairs and the nurse is explaining how to change a nappy and they hear this woman go past screaming sort of like Doppler effect I imagine and Blaze was born about 15 minutes after we got into the room and I was transformed forever that feeling when I got to hold her I, I caught her she was born into a birthing pool there was a bit of excitement because the cord was extremely short and it meant that Gina couldn't bring her up to her chest. The cord only would allow Blaze to sit on Gina's belly. And Gina, in her post-labor delirium, was trying to pull Blaze closer to her and didn't realize that the cord was so short. And it meant that Blaze wasn't breathing. No one realized why, but we just realized Blaze wasn't breathing and was starting to go a bit blue. And the midwife was starting to freak out and was about to go press the red button, which would get the doctors running. And in fact, did press the red button. Just after she pressed it, I saw that there was tension on the cord. And I said, oh, the cord's short. Let's just give it some slack. And the minute that we did that, <sighs> Blaze started breathing. And then a couple beats after that, a doctor came running into the room with his arms outstretched and was ready to grab Blaze and take her away. He didn't see that she was still attached to Gina. The placenta hadn't come through yet. So I shoulder barged him out of the way. And I stood between him and Gina and I said, it's okay, it's okay. And he looked at me like I was an arsehole and I felt really bad. But I just knew in that moment he was going to grab Blaze and then a horrible thing was going to happen. It's going to be painful for everyone. So I just barged him out of the way. I went and said sorry to him afterwards. So that, that was a bit of excitement. We bundled Blaze up and Gina went to go have a shower and I had Blaze on my chest just lying on the bed there and I had that feeling of okay my life has changed forever now and this feeling of being invested in the world more than I ever had been before before that I was feeling like the world was a, a terrible and scary and messed up place and feeling blaze on my chest I realized well now I have to make it better I have to help to make this world a good place for this little one and then a couple of years went by and when Blaze was maybe two and a half, we discovered this lump in her belly, just this strange hardish lump that felt kind of almost like a lemon. And when Gina took her to the doctor, the doctor got very scared and said, you're going to need to go to, to Sydney and get this looked at. I'm a bit worried that it might be the C word, which it turned out to be. And so we had to take her to the kids' hospital in Sydney and by that time, Blaze had spent two and a half years growing up on a bush property, sitting in the dirt, playing with charcoal, playing with fire, climbing trees, eating witchetty grubs, listening to birdsong, chasing free-range guinea pigs around. Being in a city was strange for her. Being in a hospital was weird for her. And having adults who were in a hurry and quite bossy and telling her that they needed to take her temperature or put this blood pressure cuff on her or that she needed to sit still for this thing. 
she really didn't take well to it at all. <laughs> it was like trying to explain to a wild creature that captivity was an okay thing, or it was okay to be prodded and examined and things like that. And she was extremely resistant and was having massive wailing tantrums that were exhausting for everyone, including her. And it was just really wrenching for me, heart-wrenching, the moment that we had to hand her over for that operation and they put the mask over her face which would give the anesthetic gas that would knock her out she was protesting and screaming and struggling and then she just slowly kind of lost consciousness as she went under the anesthetic just felt so horrible so such a horrible wrenching thing for me to do and then to hand her over to adults who I knew were gonna slice into her with scalpels and a part of me of course knew this was exactly what she needed and was grateful but the neurotic part of me was just incredibly overwhelmed by that and then also, when she was waking up from the anesthetic, woke up screaming. You know, it was almost like she'd just been on pause. She just woke up screaming after the operation. And then to see those stitches and this large incision in her belly was so difficult to see. But the doctor said, the good news is we've got the tumor out. It seemed to just be a single tumor. It looked like we were going to have to take out one of her kidneys, but we managed to save the kidneys. But in doing so, I'm afraid that we spilt some of the blood from inside the tumor into her stomach cavity and we've hosed it out as best we could but there's a slight risk some tumor cells got away but that's a small risk and all being well now this is the end of the whole cancer journey we think we've got it all come back in six months for a checkup so three months later was was when the swimming lesson happened and when blaze was admitted to hospital and died two weeks after that and the doctor said that they'd never seen a cancer um, so virulent and that they still couldn't even identify what kind of a cancer it was. It seemed an unusual kind. And the best guess that they had was that the chemotherapy that Blaze had been exposed to during pregnancy had triggered the cancer, but then had also suppressed it kind of paradoxically. Chemotherapy agents can be carcinogenic, but then it had also stopped the cancer growing any further. But to this day, to my knowledge, they still haven't identified the kind of cancer. They even sent samples of it to the doctor in the States who was the head honcho for cancer classification. That day, when the, when the doctors told us, hey, it's time to switch off the machine, they called us into a room and there was a, a meeting of all of them. All of them were there. Everyone that was involved in Blaze's care, all the nurses, the different pediatric oncologists, people who worked in the intensive care they were all there because they knew they had this difficult message for us and my attitude up to that point had been well clearly it's looking incredibly dire but we just need to pray for a miracle and miracles happen and maybe months from now we'll be able to release our own viral YouTube video which will have a title like Miracle Cure from Cancer and we can talk about how it's never too late and you should never give up. And our daughter came back from the very brink of death. And as the doctors are talking to me, I realize what they're saying is that we're not going to be able to make this video and that, that the window, as far as they're concerned, is closed and that it's time to start thinking about how to release her from this situation because because of everything that we're having to do to keep her alive is actually damaging her body and that she might have irreparable damage which would massively impair her quality of life. It would mean that she'd be in a wheelchair for the rest of her life, probably brain damaged and probably having to breathe oxygen for the rest of her life. 
there's a strange what's that strange sound what's that weird kind of animal sound that's coming and then realizing it was coming from my mouth and that my body was starting to grieve before my mind had even caught up with it and so in between these kind of sobbing and wailing I spit out the words I want to know how this is going to affect the care that she receives in other words are you guys still going to look after her as if she can pull out of this because I'm I want to hold the door open for a miracle and the doctor bless him beautiful compassionate doctor said I understand that you'd like us to keep on treating Blaze to the best of our ability that's fine we can revisit this conversation in a day or two and then they left and Gina and I held each other and cried in that room I thought I was crying just because of the horror that we were even having this conversation I wasn't quite ready to let go and didn't feel like I was crying because it was actually coming to the end of Blaze's life that evening we went back to the place we were staying this house that was on the hospital grounds that was for parents of kids who were seriously ill and in the room where we were staying it left one of the windows open this enormous moth had got in as a beautiful moth incredibly intricate in its design it's really delicate wings i was tired i was overwhelmed and i thought i can't there's so much shit in my life right now i just can't control but i'm going to get this fucking moth out of this room need to save this moth <laughs> so i stalk over to this moth and i try to catch it and as i catch it i pin part of its wing to the wall with my finger and it still flutters so intensely that it gets away and comes to rest on a different part of the room and i see there's a little bit missing from its wing now it kind of breaks my heart and makes me angry all at once i'm sort of so irritated by this what is this world where horrible things happen to delicate fragile beings even though i was the perpetrator in this case but that just made me angrier because i was like why can't this moth just cooperate with me and let me rescue it i'm trying to do the right thing for it so i start grabbing at it again and again it flutters out it's incredibly strong and fast it's fluttering all over the place and i'm grabbing at it and grabbing at it and more and more of its moth dust is being left in different prints on the wall and it suffers a couple more tears and then it hits me suddenly it cuts through that the anger and the overwhelm and i realize i'm actually just destroying this moth i'm impairing its ability to fly and to carry on being a moth and as i have that thought i realize this is also what we're doing to blaze right now we're actually impairing her ability to live with the things that we're doing the searing concentration of the oxygen the damaging pressure of the air is actually wounding her like just like I'm wounding this moth and we're pretending that we're helping blaze just like I'm pretending that I'm helping this moth but actually damage is occurring and that was the moment when I realized okay it's time so it was the next day we went and sat with blaze and she was lying in this bed with all of the tubes going into her face and the breathing tube and the mask that was over her mouth and iv lines going into her arm chemotherapy lines going into her arm the beeping of machines and then this the breathing machine itself was this massive big engine it's like made a sound like a almost like a washing machine or something like chonga 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 and with every chonga blaze's whole body would move as if she was being shaken and I sort of saw her for the first time really clearly and just saw how how much violence was being done to this poor body that was actually ready to leave ready to fly away all on its own 
and we were kind of pinning it here to life and damaging it, wounding her. At that point, it just became unbearable to keep her on the machine anymore. We said, let's, can we please just get her off this machine as quickly as possible? It's clear that we've reached the end of the road and now it's just distressing to see this machine shaking her body like a rag doll and all of these veins and tubes in her. Let's let her die peacefully. But somehow with all the conversations and things that needed to happen, it wasn't until late into the night that we got to the place where we'd had all the conversations we needed to, we'd signed all the forms, we'd spoken to friends and family and let them know what was about to happen. And then the doctors were amazing, they were so beautiful, they said, okay, just let us know how you want this to happen. What do you need? Do you want us to be here? We said, we want to do this alone, just tell us what buttons to press, how to get the breathing machine to switch off we'll just hold her and we'll we'll do this on our own and so they explained to us this is the button that you'll press to give her an overdose of morphine this is the button that you can press to switch off the breathing machine when you're ready this is how you can take out the ventilation tube so we held her and They disconnected all the IVs so that it was possible for us to hold her for the first time in two weeks. We hadn't been able to hold her. And we said all of the most powerful and precious things that we could think of to her. And we sang all of our most sacred songs to her as Gina pressed the button and I disconnected the hose. We'd forgotten to ask how to switch off the machine, so it was still going chunga, chunga, chunga in the background and air was hissing out of this hose, so I just stuffed it under a pillow and tried to block out the sound as we held her and sang to her and I told her the thing that I told her every day of her life, pretty much, which was that she was my clever and brave and strong. (laughs) And beautiful girl. And I was so proud to be her daddy. (laughs) So proud to be her daddy. (sighs) We felt her spirit fly out of her body. We felt that the part of her that was Blaze leave. And it felt like this expansion suddenly, this thing that was, this life in her just almost seemed like it expanded. And later we realized we both had this image of her this kind of golden three-dimensional snowflake (sighs) that expanded out of her body and filled the room and then carried on expanding into nothingness and flew away. (sighs) Then we held her through the night. They came in and helped to take out the rest of the tubes and take the tape off her face so we could see her face which we hadn't been able to see for the past two weeks. There was this moment when I I looked at her and I said, oh, it, it is you, it was you. Almost like the blaze that we'd let go of just a minute ago hadn't felt like the actual blaze because she was she smelled like hospital, she smelled like astringent, sterilized dressings, and disinfectant and and I realized, oh my God, it is actually you. <sighs> and they left us and we, we held her through the night and mostly I held her body and, and there were times when I'd wake up in the night and I'd have this horrible 
thing where for a minute it would feel like I was holding her and she was alive and everything was okay again. And then I'd feel the stillness and the heaviness in her body and realize that it wasn't okay. <laughs> and she wasn't really with us. And this was some strange remnant of Blaze that wasn't really her at all, just her cocoon that she'd cast off. And in the morning, they, the nurses, these beautiful nurses, so loving and compassionate, came and helped us to clean her and plait her hair and dress her in her favorite clothes. <laughs> and they told us that we would have to let them wheel her body down to the morgue that they would they'd put a blanket over her and they'd wheel her down to the morgue and we said we'd really like to hold her until the last minute feels like our responsibility to her so is it possible to bundle her up in blankets and we'll carry her down to the morgue we'll cover her face so none of the other families in the intensive care can can see they led us bless them and so we wrapped her in this beautiful colorful purple blanket so it looked like she was just asleep and I carried her like she was only sleeping and we walked down through the hospital corridors me and Gina singing to her until we got down into the to the basement where the morgue was and we had to lay her down on a on a trolley and hand her over to this to the man to the technician who was working at the morgue that day they'd have to put her in a in a fridge to keep the body fresh until the funeral and then we walked out into the sunlight of the next morning people rushing around busy going to work and talking on phones and buses and cars we were kind of stunned and my first feeling was this feeling of relief and I felt so ashamed but this relief that the ordeal was over this horrible purgatory of waiting to see if our daughter was going to survive and now knowing that she hadn't, okay, and we'd given her the best death that we could. And at that point, the wound in me, the grief wound, was that kind of fresh wound, like when I've cut myself with a knife before and it's there's a moment before the blood starts coming in, you just see kind of the white of fat cells underneath. As in that moment in my grief where I was just kind of just shock and just stunned and it's just almost a feeling of relief and also a feeling of grace like God is in everything the universe is breathing through everything right now everything is sacred even though these people around us don't seem to realize it we found a, a cafe to go sit down at and have some breakfast and as we were wondering what to order and kind of looking around stunned at this new world I saw something moving in the sky above us and this, I don't know what to call it, a flock of moths came through the cafe. Tiny little ones, these ones, just about a centimeter, about half inch long. And they were getting caught in people's hair and people were swatting at them and squashing them and throwing them away and they were dropping into people's drinks. And I sort of felt like it was this message from the universe, this kind of communication at the end of Blaze's journey had come through a moth and then these other little moths were here that they were flying free and my first response at seeing them come into trouble and getting tangled in things and crushed and drowned was just my god what is this world 
what is this world where horrible, terrible things happen to innocent beings? And at first it was overwhelmed and disgust. And then I kind of felt like this shift as I was experiencing and I realized actually every single one of these moths is someone's daughter, someone's son. And maybe the message is we're constantly flitting into and out of existence. Creatures are moving in and out of life all the time and then flying away back to wherever they came from again, wherever we sort of felt like that enormous golden three-dimensional snowflake went back to whatever mystery that is. And I felt this kinship with all of the parents who have loved and lost, or all of the parents who have felt racked by indecision or felt torn by the kind of crucible of this journey, this labor of love, investing in these little creatures, knowing that in the end we just can't protect them from the world and that they won't be able to survive indefinitely. At some point they'll have to leave this world just like we'll have to leave this world too. There's kind of acceptance or recognition of this impermanence and somehow it felt in that moment okay. And that kind of became something that I clung to, not always successfully in the years that followed and what I found was that the grief became harder over time. After the grief really kicked in over the next few days, I'd find myself just overcome with tears and wailing in the car or broken down in our hotel room and sobbing and wailing and shouting obscenities at God, at life, at the universe. But that was kind of the easy part of the grief in a way. It was like the fresh, hot grief, like when, when blood is first flowing from a wound, it did flow. And it was easy to feel and easy to move it through. And the big waves of grief wouldn't last that long even if I allowed myself to really plunge into the heart of it. 10, 15 minutes of really intense crying or screaming or swearing. And then I'd feel back to this place of expanded acceptance. And I'd be just strangely, remarkably okay in myself for long stretches of time until suddenly I wasn't when the next wave hit. And then over time, over the next... In a year or so, those waves became less frequent. And it was almost like if it was a wound, like when the blood congeals and starts to clot, the grief became more sluggish and slower to flow through. And it might be that days at a time I'd be lost in a feeling of hopelessness or depression or just feeling kind of irritable and not knowing why. And then I after sort of days of feeling funky or depressed or dark, after days of that, suddenly realizing, oh, is this grief? And then with that realization, a shift that would just switch it into tears and then there'd be some crying and some relief and that wave would pass and I'd feel okay again until the next one came. But it would, it would creep up in strange ways. It would look like depression or it would look like rage or it would look like hostility towards Gina or just general overwhelm at life. We had this amazing ceremony to let Blaze go, and it was about a month and a half after she died, actually. We'd had her cremated at the nearest crematorium we could find in Sydney. And so by this time, weeks later, we'd come back down to the south coast, where we were living back in our house. And... We were living on a beach and at the end of the beach was a, a river that flowed out to the sea and we invited our friends and we said this is a celebration of Blaze's life 
for my part mainly because I just couldn't stand to see all these people in black and depressed. So he said, please wear pink and purple, which are Blaze's favorite colors. And you can wear tutus and fairy wings if you like to, because they were some of her favorite things to wear. And we spent the morning making rafts, putting pink and purple flowers on them. And then when the tide turned and the river was flowing out to the sea, we went down to the river and we released the rafts, the pink and purple flowers. We let them flow out into the ocean. We sang, we sang together in a big circle of wonderful, beautiful, open-hearted adults who are all wearing pink and purple and many of them wearing fairy wings and tutus. <sighs> and after it was done and most people were going back to the house, I realized that I hadn't actually felt much grief the whole day. I'd mostly been sort of working out the logistics and saying hi to people and thanking them for coming. And then as everyone was walking away and I realized it was done, I just kind of broke down and I couldn't even walk. And I sort of dropped to my knees. And as luck would have it, there were several male friends of mine. And so this group of about six men gathered around and they just held me while I cried and sobbed and said things like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Because another thing I realized was that a big part of the grieving process was it's sinking in that this was real in lots of different ways. There's different levels of it being real. Okay, now this is real. Oh, actually, it's, it's this much real. Okay, it's still real. And this creeping, horrible, insidious idea that I had in my head, which would keep sneaking in through the back door, that maybe there'd been some terrible mix-up and the blaze that we'd handed over wasn't the real blaze and she was out there somewhere but just with a different family and so if I saw a red-haired child on the street sometimes my heart would leap and I would think it was her or having this feeling that I'd somehow blundered into a parallel universe I was in the wrong reality and there was some other reality where blaze was still alive and well Perhaps there was some way I could get back there again. All different ways that my brain was trying to make sense of the horror of her not being in the world anymore. <sighs> to be honest, that, that journey with grief, <laughs> as you can tell, it's now seven years since we say goodbye to Blaze. I have often thought to myself I should get a tattoo the words, is it grief on my arms so that I can look down and whenever I'm feeling irritated or overwhelmed or just inexplicably depressed about the world or hopeless and just remind myself, is this grief? And then usually when I ask myself, is it grief? The resounding answer in my body is yes. And then the tears flow. And I realize it's just more aftershocks, more late tremors, more slow congealed waves of grief moving through. So I, I'm still kind of rehabilitating myself. The echoes are, are still reverberating through, but over time they get further and further apart. And mainly now my, my overwhelming feeling is of gratitude. You know, we could have terminated Blaze's life when they advised us to, and instead we got three amazing, wonderful years of Blaze. Three incredible, magical 
years. And the only way I can make sense of the whole thing is to tell myself that Blaze just needed three years. That was all she needed here before she went back to where she came from. And the perspective I have on that, I feel so grateful for too, because I think back to that swimming lesson and all of the times when I felt so racked. Should we do this? What's the right thing? Am I being a good parent in this way? Am I being a good parent in that way? And then two weeks later, that was the last day I saw her conscious and realizing none of that mattered. None of the minutiae, those little decisions that felt so racking, that that felt so fraught, none of them mattered. The only thing that mattered was the times when I felt close to her, that time I held her in the shower afterwards and told her that I loved her and sang to her and felt so close and connected that I felt in that moment as I did in so many other moments, wow, this is so wonderful and beautiful. I could die happy right now. This is worth the price of admission alone to this whole business of life. And telling her that she is my clever and brave and strong, beautiful girl and I'm so proud to be her dad. Those are the things I cling to. Those are the only things that matter from the perspective of her moving out of her body and flying back to where she came from. is all for this week's episode folks this is chloe moriando behind me now and we just heard from lee true you can find lee on instagram 
at Lee underscore true. And you can find an addendum to that story, a little sort of chapter two to that story over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. If you look up the March 2nd post, we have a bonus story there called Tiger Tiger Burning Bright by Lee True. Just typical of the sort of bonus content that we make available to our patrons at patreon.com slash risk. Folks, don't forget to look us up at risk-show.com. Everything you might want to know about the show is on our website there. But you can also follow us on our socials at Risk Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Kevin Allison. You'll find our school at thestorystudio.org. You can find me for one-on-one training at kevinallison.com. Or you can find me for making little personalized videos for friends or family over at cameo.com slash thekevinallison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. It's time to go And I know that right now Time is moving a little slow But little moth Please take your time You have more than you think And you may feel like you're sinking But I swear you will be Shit, this fucking cock's a motherfucker. 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 Cock's a